Welcome to Clemson Dubcast, Wednesday, August 11th. Clemson football hot and heavy into camp. And I just have to say, grateful that we cover Clemson and not Georgia, Alabama, or any number of other schools out there whose coaches just put total lockdown on the media where it's hard to really learn anything. Not that we have total access or anything, but still certainly enough where you can figure some things out and get some real insight into these players, including the freshmen, uh, who we have plenty of updates on at TigerIllustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse and neglect, car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu Com. Okay, honored to have former Clemson University President Jim Barker join the podcast. A lot of fascinating recollections from his time early in the Debo Sweeney era and before. Also, his perspective on all the many ways college athletics has changed, is changing, and will continue to change moving forward. This is a really good one. Enjoy. Here we go. Okay, joined by... Uh, Former, do you, how do you go by? What do you go by? Still go by well, I, president? Uh, well, my official title is president emeritus. Uh, as long as you don't call me the old president. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I am thrilled to to have you a part of the podcast. Um, in fact, last I want to say it was Thursday. Uh, so a friend of mine, his name is Chris Eliezer. I don't know if you know him. He, he's a avid listener he said you know who you should get on your podcast jim barker and i said well actually uh i've got that on the schedule so uh, i'm really happy to have you have you here and um i must say i've i've i'm great friends with the huey family uh trip huey uh and 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 his his family and so we spent a lot of time over at the lake house of of his parents and the Neils, who we're friends with, and, and I, y'all are neighbors with them, and I would like to, on behalf of some of my rowdier friends, I'd like to apologize for the noise that they have uh, <laughs> caused over the summer. <laughs> well, we've, been, we've enjoyed having y'all at, at our dock, and uh, 
it's uh it's a great neighborhood and um all those folks are good friends and Cecil certainly is one as uh, a fraternity brother of mine, so we've known each other uh, I don't know fifty five or sixty years. So it's been um, it's great being being able to be close to all those folks. Can you maybe give us a summation of of, of what you're up to and and what the past I guess seven years have been like as you sort of moved uh, into the more obscure parts of of, of or I guess uh, less prominent a part of life after being the president. Yeah, I um, I could tell you that um, enjoying retirement, Marcia and I uh, are very happy in, in uh, this current s- uh, season of our life. And uh, I'm teaching a class, an architecture class, uh, each fall, enjoying that. We're doing a great deal of travel, although we've happened to be a little more selective about our travel in the last year or so. But we're still traveling and spend a lot of time with our grandchildren. Uh, they're going to be with us this week, uh, part of the time they they, our nicknames are Sweet and Cappy. I'm Cappy and Marcia Sweet, so they call it Camp Sweet and Cappy when they come to visit us. So we have all kinds of things planned and with them. Um, uh, the board has asked me to be a part of the Legacy Council uh, uh, regarding uh, for the uh, cemetery, uh, Woodland Cemetery on campus. And so I'm spending a great deal of time in, in, that, uh, in that regard. Um, singing in the choir uh, at church, and and also a lot of student organizations have asked me to be engaged with them, and sometimes giving campus tours and sometimes advice. And so all those are very enjoyable um, ways to uh, enjoy life in Sir Clemson. I think. What's your the favorite place y'all have uh, been abroad that? that you hadn't been before and that you've been able to travel to uh, in retirement? Well, the Alumni Association was very kind to um, make sure that that, uh, they said thank you and and they let us uh, take a trip of our own choosing. And and that trip itself was probably the highlight of what we've done. It was in Europe. And uh, most all those were new places that we saw in Portugal, and um, even places in Spain that we'd not seen uh, in Granada, Spain, that was one of our special places, I think. Um, but it's um, as an architect, you, you normally travel to look at buildings, and and have done we've done quite a bit of that. Uh, we we're fortunate to be able to be able to have done that. Um, and um, there's so many interesting buildings, uh, and I, I never get enough of it, I'm afraid. It, I'm even spending a lot of time looking at buildings on campus, and I have done, they have done um, sketchbooks uh, just of campus buildings. And I started with one, and I said, well, this pandemic may go on for a while. Now I've done 13 sketchbooks, each one with about 25 watercolors in it. So... Um, being able to look at buildings far away and also buildings that I, I thought I knew very well, but when you sit to draw something, you have to look much more closely than you ever have before. So that's been an enjoyable thing too. So what's the routine on that for, for each one? Um, well, Marsh and I walk on campus pretty regularly and if something catches my eye, I'll take a photograph of it. If I have time, I'll, sketch right there on the spot but most of the time we don't and it's so darn hot lately 
that I'll bring that uh, photograph home and study it and then try to do a drawing or most in almost all cases a watercolor of that and as they stack up um, and if I get 24 25 they, they get bound into a sketchbook and uh, those are uh, here stacking up on the table here at home so I don't know how tall that stack will be uh, by the time the, the pandemic's over any of them you care to share um, as far as what they are well as far as maybe uh, sending some to me maybe I could share as far as uh, sure publicize I'd be I'd be, be happy to have you do that there are some that are in the uh, the new hotel in Patrick Square um, that um, the owner of that hotel uh, Mike Cheatham has uh, made a commitment to Clemson that uh, for each of those that uh, they use there, he's made a gift gift to the university uh, from the revenue that the hotel generates. So some of those are visible um, out there. Um, but yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to share those with you. It's interesting. I was doing a little homework before this and uh, saw a um, something that Colonel Scarden wrote, a professor emeritus of English, upon your retirement, and uh, something I did not know. He said, I, I have been privileged in my teaching career at Clemson to have had James Barker as a student in my classes for three of his early semesters. He even said, he said one B and two A's. Is that a violation of HIPAA for him to have uh, <laughs> shared? <laughs> I've heard him say that publicly uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I always thought it was. I always thought I had all A's, but I'm sure he's right. He's got a much better memory than me. He, he was one of the most outstanding teachers I ever had. He wow. just and I did not know about his military life uh, when I was in his classes. I just knew that he was he was a magical teacher with his voice and having him reading uh, English uh, romantic poets mm. to us in class with that deep voice. I just thought this is this is what college is supposed to be right here. And yeah. uh, a very special man. And as he continued, he said, few people have known that Jim Barker came to Clemson on a partial athletic scholarship. He was a pole vaulter from Kingsport, Tennessee. Like his reticence to talk about his ability to draw, he seemed less inclined to review his brief career as a vaulter. During his early years as a student in the School of Architecture, he had an assignment, possibly in design or to test his creative inclinations. He visited my office and asked if I would take a look at his project. To me, Jim always had been a serious student. Naturally, I was flattered by his request. He unveiled plans and drawings for a city to be constructed in the area where South Carolina, Georgia, and North Carolina boundaries are contiguous. The overall concept was a layout of a series of concentric circles in which each circle, some function or activity, habitation, religion, education, civic government, business, medical, etc., would be planned. I was amazed at his vision, and and then as a, a fellow English person, I, I am that this is so beyond my comprehension. But can you, in layman's terms, can you share that? I'm just kind of fascinated by that project uh, that you put together as a student. He um, he he was a, a wonderful advisor, so I didn't hesitate to to bring uh, to him some some ideas that I had. And of course, I had wonderful faculty members in architecture too, and that's what they're 
job was, but it was nice to be able to have a perspective from someone who didn't, you know, didn't think like an architect. Uh, so that's that was why that um, we had that conversation. It was a new town to be built, um, where um, at a central point between Walhalla, Westminster, and Seneca. And it was to be a, a town where the high schools would be consolidated, maybe maybe more than just the high schools. And all of them were, were about um, six miles from those points. So it, would, it made sense in some ways, just economically and, and um, academically, to have that kind of merger. But there would be a town that would grow up around those schools. So we needed to plan for housing, um, we need to plan for uh, shopping. So it and the idea of a new town was very much being being actually executed in uh, in England. So I was studying those English new towns, and and so that plan uh, emerged from uh, the the thought about uh, what those three towns could do if they consolidated some of their resources and ideas. And uh, so that's how that came to be, and. Followed up on that uh, with my thesis, undergraduate thesis, all the way down to the details of some of the buildings that would be proposed as part of that new town. That's fascinating. What I guess shifting to the present, Clemson. Uh, we were actually in Athens uh, over the weekend visiting some family. Actually, uh, former Mary Coon, who is uh, yeah the late. Bill Coon's daughter, and um, it was a cluster of. There's, it's, it's really interesting. A cluster of f- people who grew up in Clemson <clears throat> went to Daniel, and were all friends. They were they were friends with Trip Huey as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow they all five of them have all ended up back in Athens over the last uh, in, in recent years, and so it was really fascinating listening to some of their old stories. And they were all just uh, blown away by how much Clemson has changed in recent years with, with the new development and things like that downtown. What, what is your perspective um, on how much Clemson has changed and continues to change and I'm not asking you to state a position per se on a controversial topic, but just curious as given your background uh, and your well, his, history and love for the place, um, some thoughts. Well, I'm, I'm, um, uh, I, I appreciate you asking that question, it, and I think uh, the city of Clemson and the campus itself have have grown up together from the very founding of the university. Um, the fire department that the city uses is the one established by um, by the university, and that started before there was much of a town. There was really more of the university that needed fire protection, and instead of creating two fire departments, the the idea was to have one serving both, and that's still alive today. And also, the bus system that we have is a is a consolidation of of uh, the needs of the city and the needs of the campus. And uh, very both of those have been very successful. Um, but I, I think in terms of uh, in terms of the architecture, we are starting to see because the the town of Clemson is is surrounded by uh, at least three, two of the three sides, with a, a university, a lake, and so the, there's going to be a need for us to be more vertical in our planning and buildings. 
you're starting to see an awful lot of that happen now because the of the land value and because of the just accessibility of, of, of land as the city and the university universities grow. Um, I think that that in, in great almost in every case there's been a great deal of thought given to uh, the buildings that we build on campus and the buildings that we build in town. Uh, I'd like to see us continue to work more more strongly together. Uh, I know that that's important to the university. It's important to President Clements, and I know that important to to our new mayor. So, uh, town and gown relations have always been a strong part of the universities and the city's vision for the future, and and we've demonstrated that. And I think we just need to continue to build on that. Uh, I'm excited about the new business school, uh, how it's settling in there. Uh, the new access to uh, Old Main, Tillman Hall, um, from the the um, the, the Douthat Hills housing projects up there, um, and as I see a new building taking shape at Daniel near Daniel Hall, and the access that that will uh, frame back to the tower, uh, the clock tower. Uh, so I, I think the I think we're making real progress. Just like to see the city and the university uh, work even more closely together. Can the infrastructure? I mean, you know, a lot of college towns are you know, much bigger. Athens, obviously, being an example. I mean, that's a city, uh, kind of a you know grid system. Whereas Clemson, <laughs> there's one road. <laughs> you yeah. know, and can the infrastructure? And I'm a obviously a total novice at this, but just from the outside looking in, I'm, uh, my question is, can the infrastructure of downtown handle this vast influx of population and uh, stress on the, on the, on the sewer or things like that? Well, the nice thing to see about that is that the city has been very forward thinking about planning um, way into the future and both current challenges, but way into the future and a recent work that they have done, um, in which uh, Marsh and I were part of it, um, along with many, many other people. Uh, but I'm encouraged by the quality of the firms they've used and the ideas that are emerging. And uh, uh, but, and I think the, the pace at which the city is growing is one that we all need to, to watch and, and be thoughtful about as we make decisions. But the key to that is planning and I think the city is doing a terrific job, as is the university, in thinking about the future and how the two um, uh, can work together. So, um, yeah, I think it, 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 the pace of the growth of the city is uh, is very much determined by the pace of the growth in students at the university. And the, the hardest question I had to address during my time was um, how big should Clemson be? Hmm. Such a simple question, and and we worked really hard at that, and I know that work continues to try to grow at the right rate um, and provide um, South Carolinians access to their finest university. And so, but that but that that requires a great deal of thought in in terms of what the pace of that growth should be, and. Uh, it, it is possible to imagine a Clemson that could lose some of its 
finest qualities if we don't answer that question correctly. You mentioned you continue to teach an architecture course, and is is this still the same architecture of leadership course that you mentioned to me? Yeah, um, I got to do it. I got to do it till I get it right. <laughs> yeah, it's still that course. Okay, really fascinating. Um, I guess we sat down in the fall of nineteen uh, for a, a, a series of articles I was doing on Dabo's leadership and. A number of parts of that conversation with you kind of took my breath away and, and were just um, extremely interesting and uh, really revealing of, of the bigger picture of, of Dabo's leadership. And and one of those was you mentioning, you know, sharing some insight into that course, Architecture of Leadership. Um, and you mentioned that Dabo's name often comes up in that course, which includes study of Martin Luther King Jr., George Washington, Harriet Tubman. Can you maybe, uh, can we can we go back to that and, and maybe um, dig, dig a little deeper into that and, and maybe your insights into it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, I think the study of leadership is, is, is very hard to get your hands around because it at one level, it can be very it seems very very simple, and at another level, you can read so many different books on leadership, and that it looks incredibly complex. And one of the things I try to establish in that class is um, the students drive drive it to a great extent. They they ask each other questions and they come prepared to ask questions, and oftentimes the response, well the the questions themselves are framed and the responses are framed around, um, and I teach it each fall, so I guess it's on people's minds, around Clemson football and, and around the the um, leadership qualities of Dabo Sweeney. And um, I, I certainly want that to happen. Uh, I, I'm, and they will bring up other examples uh, other than just, Dabo Swinney, another teacher they might have or a situation that they were in in a design studio that week or whatever. So I, I want it to be authentic and it, and in some ways to show that um, uh, teach, learning to be a good follower and learning to be a good leader are not that different from each other. And um, Dabo is a good example of that. I think to an extent this past fall, he was learning from his his players um, in, in terms of their uh, desire to have uh, some gatherings and some demonstrations. And uh, I'm not sure that he would have been a part of that with unless he had been listening closely to his players. And of course, they're listening closely to him. So that kind of situation of leader and follower and the students begin to realize that they are leaders and followers on the same day um, in what they're doing in their classes. So that's that class um, has been a real joy to be to be a part of. I taught it virtually last fall. Uh, I hope I can teach it in person this fall. We'll see how that how that develops, but. Um, it's been it's been a real joy that class, and it wouldn't have happened had it not been for the department chair. Uh, once I made the transition from being president to being a faculty member, 
I changed my major, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Kate Swenson uh, was our uh, our director of the School of Architecture, and I was planning on teaching a class that Bill Kuhn and Lynn Craig and I taught together the whole time I was in the president's office. And Kate said, no, I got something else in mind. You need to teach a course on leadership. And I said, oh, my goodness. That's the hardest course there is to teach. And she said, well, if you don't do it, who is? And what will happen to those 14 years of experiences that you had if you don't pass it on? Mm. So um, that's how that course came to be. And I've continued to change it and refine it. And that's what I'm doing right now as classes are starting to take shape for this fall. And you've t- you've told Dabo about this, that his name often comes up in that class? I think so. Um, I don't see him quite as often as I used to. But, yeah, I think I have told him about that. Um, I was down at football practice one day and uh, um, with my brother, who was visiting from North Carolina. Played football at NC State, so I, I rub it in every time I get a chance to make him go to practice <laughs> with me. Um, and uh, I think I mentioned it to him then. Yeah. Your first encounter with Dabo, another uh, revelation to me, I think, uh, when we gathered in, in the fall of 19, was at a, in, at a right as the day that he that Tommy Bowden announced that Dabo Sweeney was the new receivers coach. Nobody knew who the heck he was, including you. And you just so happened to be in Alabama at a, uh, I guess, a fundraising event for Clemson. And I'm going to correct you here. Actually, Dabo corrected you um, because I, after this article published two years ago, um, you had you had said it was in Birmingham. And this is classic Dabo because he doesn't forget a thing. Uh, how, uh, yeah. His, Where was it? He said, actually, he said, actually, it was in Huntsville. <laughs> Huntsville, Alabama. Yep. Okay. So... Can well, you... I'm uh, I'm cor- I'm cor- standing corrected. I, most of the time, I didn't know where I was anyway on all those travels. But, um, but yeah, but it, he did agree that was the first day that he that was the day he was hired, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He remembers it yeah. uh, as vividly as you do. So, can you share that uh, that that day uh, and your recollections of of your first encounter with him? I um yes I'm. I think about it from time to time, um, actually fairly often. Um, it was an alumni gathering in Huntsville, and there are a lot of uh, engineers from Clemson and scientists that work uh, in Huntsville. So the Alumni Association has a chapter there, and they had invited me to come and give them an update on what was happening at the university. Um, and um, someone introduced me to this new wide receivers coach, and that he, he uh, said said to me that he had Tommy Bowden had asked him to come to this meeting and uh, speak to the alumni, and uh, I didn't know that was going to be the case. And I was happy to meet him, and the more we talked, the more uh, impressed I was. But he spoke before me, and I almost didn't want to speak <laughs> after that. Uh, I had carefully thought through what I wanted to say, but I wasn't even going to come close to what the message he was and the energy uh, insight he was delivering. And uh, on the way back, um, I, I couldn't help but think this this is an unusual football coach. I mean, that's not what I 
normally expect. And uh, the fact that he had held those people in his with his talk so directly and so closely um, that I was very much impressed. I, I, I was, and then met his wife and the boys getting ice cream at um, at the Hendricks Center not that long after that, after they had moved, and, and was even more uh, impressed with um, – with what he had to say and, and with Kathleen and, and his his three sons. And then um, other times that I had uh, had contact with him was when he was uh, asked by Tommy Bowden to serve on a, a task force that Terry Don and Provost Dory Helms were chairing uh, regarding um, all, the offer of scholarships uh, and when the timing of that and what the criteria for that should be. And uh, and hearing back from the provost about how insightful Dabo was, and I think that may have been one of the experiences that Terry Don recorded in the back of his mind saying this was Dabo Sweeney's got his act together. And uh, so all that combined to when, when Terry Don said that uh, if it was going to be a change that he was thinking that Dabo would be the interim and he said what do you think of that and i said i, I agree with you i trust you but i've also been impressed with with Debo. so that's that's how all that unfolded beginning with that trip to huntsville not birmingham <laughs> <laughs> um you mentioned shortly after Dabo and his family got to clemson that y'all ran into them at the hendrix center getting ice cream it needs to be pointed out uh, to those listening, that not normal for a co- an assistant football coach to be all the way over there. I mean, the Hendricks Center's in the middle of campus, whereas the football staff is usually in their cave, whether it's the, well, it's the McFadden building at the time. Now it's over at the Reeves facility. But not normal even back then to see an assistant coach and his family mingling with students, getting ice cream at the student center. Am I correct? I think that's absolutely accurate, and I, I think it's one of the. I may have been as impressed about that as I was about his talk in, in Huntsville. Uh, the fact that his family orientation, and, and of course that wasn't artificial because the, now the whole football program beats around the idea of coaches and their family and their kids and their wives, and uh, so the, I saw the the ground ground roots of that. Uh, of that at that day at, at the Hendrickson. So yes, it was unusual. But it's if you're if you're the university president, those kind of things make you smile. When you see people building bridges where bridges don't exist, and when you see people doing things um, out of the ordinary that make the university stronger and more more a community, then it it gives you a certain degree of comfort about. Um, how things are developing and wh- wh- who are the people leading that effort. So uh, being able to, to give the reins of the football program to someone who thinks and acts like that, even though he was not, even though he's not a coordinator and, uh, or, or had had coaching experience at the level he was about to assume, uh, you just have a, I don't know, you, you have a deep sense of uh, maybe this is the right thing to do. Yeah, and in the spring of '03, uh, which is when this 
was occurring, Clemson was still very much in the thick of sort of, I guess, an identity crisis. So that might not be the right way to put it, but still trying to figure out itself and how committed it wants to be to football because of all the negative entanglements that came with the so-called glory days in the 1980s. Can you speak to that? You mentioned the bridges that did not exist at that point. It probably is common in the present to sort of take, take all that for granted. The fact that it's there, the the bridges are there now uh, and that there is this sort of spirit of unity and the football program being sort of, a, I guess, on the, the front porch of the university. Can you speak to I mean, a big part of your objective and ideal back then was to establish this one Clemson? Um, can you perhaps reflect on where you were at that point um, in, in the in the process and, and, and how just sort of, I guess, Dabo, that gesture being against that grain and, and, and toward the, the direction you wanted to go? Well, when uh, we developed a plan for where the university was going to go, um, after I was asked to serve as the 14th president of Clemson, in the interview, I told the board that, um, that I had a list of five or six or seven goals that uh, I wanted to make sure that they were comfortable with because this is where I was going to go with the university if they if if I was asked to take the job and I, one of them was to be a top 20 public university as measured by US News and Royal Report and another one was to win another championship in football so the two of those two things sound like well that's those are in harmony with each other well they weren't at that time <laughs> And, and the idea that, that we could be extremely successful academically and athletically at the same time was, a, was a, uh, not aligned with the history the way the university had been working. And there were some um, painful scars left from that. And I'm so glad that people can't remember it now because it's, uh, it, it's, it's what it should be. We, we've dealt with it. And we've um, made the progress we intended to make. And the fact that it's forgotten, that the only liability there is you, you really don't ever take it for granted. But um, that's something I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and working on. Um, so we did not want to be top 20 um, and be in anything other than full compliance with the NCAA because – that that was vitally important, and we didn't want to be top twenty academically if we couldn't win, be very successful in sports. So, those were the the two main objectives, along with having our students perform at Carnegie Hall and and being um, uh, setting the standard for being a land grant university that that other universities would follow. Those were all part of that, um, and every board meeting, I gave the board a report card on how we were doing with each of those goals. And um, if we weren't making progress, they said, well, what are you going to do about it? So it was a constant um, striving that we were headed for. And fortunately, the board was very much attuned to the idea of being both a top 20 university and winning national championships. And I think part of the that 
uh, effort and, and striving for that effort came from the fact that I was a Clemson graduate and I understood the time, when the times weren't so good as they are now. And, um, and it, and it was sort of deep in my, my psyche, I guess that that's, that's where we ought to go. And, and the board was aligned with that and extremely supportive of, uh, of, of those objectives. Uh, I think, as you said in our last conversation, you, you know, winning the national championship in 81, you know, helped uh, the university's visibility and, and, and so did a lot more of the winning seasons during that time. Uh, but the price you paid was a, a separation between faculty and athletics. There was mutual distrust and they were really far apart because of those NCAA sanctions, do you recall the time when they were farthest apart, when it was the hardest uh, to sort of get alignment or to aspire to it? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Um, I've, I've tried to erase some of those specifics from my head, but I remember we were sanctioned in basketball as well as football. Uh, not, not that far apart either. Um, and, um, I know that the, the sanctions in football came very close to after winning the national championship in 81. Um, and, and I think basketball followed that, um, that those sanctions in basketball followed there. And it was, it was for Clemson people, it was embarrassing and we can hold our head high now, but that's not the case. Then, uh, we took those sanctions seriously and we, um, we had to ask ourselves, you know, what price are we prepared to pay to be successful? And then, and then, um, I think we started making real progress to be able to do both. And, and certainly since that time, Dabo has, has made tremendous steps in, in, um, in making those two dreams be realized. You mentioned Dabo's work with the AARC, um, uh sort of restructuring uh, when they're in the flare-up on admitting whether or not to sort of take some chances on uh, some some uh, given scholarships to some maybe at-risk, for lack of a better term, academically football players. And even that during that time, he wasn't even the head coach. He was an assistant coach, but he was, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, he was pretty um, – instrumental in the idea of hey give us a chance you know if it doesn't work then we'll pay that price but if we're successful we earn some money in the bank so to speak and, and then you give us another chance and then we'll we'll keep going and and then you know, obviously he that worked they were able to earn that trust and is that the is that your sort of recollection of how that how that happened is that the right way to put it yeah, I think you you summarize it very well. That um, it wasn't a it wasn't a blank check. It was sort of taking baby steps. If we're successful in graduation rates and academic performance, and uh, compared to both the SEC and the ACC, those were the standards that we were using. If we're meeting or exceeding that, um, then then we must be doing a pretty good job of uh, taking a decision about who gets scholarship offers. 
Uh, and those were then the origins of what we see blossoming now with one of the highest graduation rates in the United States for football programs and, uh, and also academic rankings. And so for the university, uh, Dabo took great pride in having a poster that was from U.S. News, I believe, Maybe it was the Wall Street it Journal. Might have been the Wall Street Journal, yeah. In which Stanford, um, Northwestern, and Clemson were on this chart as the best combination of uh, preseason football rankings and ac- academic graduation rates. And and he took great pride in saying, you know, Stanford and Northwestern are in pretty good company with Clemson. That was the way he looked at it. Yeah, <laughs> and so, and so, um, that that has been realized from that that change that was made in the AARC, uh, and it was it was good. It was it was you, if you earn it, then you get the benefit of the doubt, uh, and if you don't, then you don't get the benefit of the doubt. So, um, and now what we see is is that result of that. Um, several years later. Going back to the sort of divide when you first took over as president, you told me that even the Tiger Paul itself was a controversial topic because faculty didn't believe or didn't want that to be what symbolized, that logo to be what symbolized the university itself. And they wanted it to just be, and it was a symbol for just athletics by itself. Is that... That's wild to think about. Yeah, it, it is a wonderful transition to see that. Like, first of all, it's a great idea. I mean, it's such a powerful, simple uh, idea. And I'm, I'm sitting here looking at uh, a Tiger Paul and the designer of it who autographed it for me. Um, it's, a, it's a terrific um, symbol. But it did symbolize uh, only the athletic part of the university. And over time, it, it, it slowly became the symbol for the entire university. And I think that, um, that transition uh, is, is one, one of the things that Tommy Bowden began and Dabo has now built on to the point where faculty members feel good about uh, how our athletic programs work and instead of being ashamed they're they're proud of it and and i think that's and the same thing is true of football coaches using the fact that we we achieved a a top 20 um academic rating as well when they try when they recruit student athletes and they and their parents and tell them look you're going to get an education that's um uh, among the best in the United States, and you're going to get what all you've seen in the in the football facilities and the coaches and all those things as well. So it's become a a, a great uh, bridge between the uh, Clemson athletics and Clemson academics. When he first took over as as interim coach and was auditioning for the job, and this is probably this probably goes back to your. Uh, class on on leadership I think you were sort of alluded to it's there's some simplicity in it some simple ideas common sense things that he he did right away like to to, to rebuild those bridges 
such as, well, let's invite the students to practice and have them participate to an extent. Let's, uh, one, one of the other ideas was the Tiger Walk, which is now, uh, of course, a fixture at home games. And not just the walk, but, and he, is, he, he actually shared this recently, he never understood why in the route that, that the team took on the buses from Anderson to the stadium that they would, they would go through all these back roads and rural areas and, and, and they wouldn't go through the scene of, of Clemson tailgating, of a Clemson home game atmosphere. And he had experienced that because as an assistant, he, was, he spent a lot of his time recruiting, so he would not be with the team on Friday nights and ride the buses over, he would drive over Saturday morning or afternoon after staying at home. And he would walk through uh, the, the, the parking lots and, and see what it was like. And he really couldn't understand why the players couldn't experience the impact of that as well. And that was really the, the genesis of his, of his idea to immediately, like he didn't, it wasn't a something that he said, we'll get to later. He did it right away for that Georgia tech game, his first game as interim coach. And I think he said recently that even Terry Don was like, wait, do we really have to do this? Like, this is a logistical nightmare to change all this up. And, and Dabo said, well, you told me that to, to act like I'm the head co- head coach, <laughs> and sure enough, they did it. So it's that getting to the leadership aspect of it, the, the simplicity of it, I guess, of the ideas of okay, if we do this, then we'll have a better shot at at all being better. If our if our players appreciate the experience more, then they're going to be better for it. If I have the students come to practice, then they're going to feel more invested, and it all just sort of goes hand in hand. Yeah, I think one of the stories that uh, may illustrate exactly what you're what you're saying there is that um, when Dabo was first asked to to take over in that first season, he was bringing uh, ideas uh, to athletic director Terry Don Phillips um, so rapidly that. Uh, and and expensively, none of these things were cheap that he was <laughs> he was doing. And of course, he'd say, "Well, you're not paying me very much. You should have somebody left over, <laughs> left over to do all these things." But anyway, after he brought one of these uh, lists of, of things that he wanted to do to Terry Don, he said, "Now, now, Davo, you know you got a you got an MBA degree." He said, "Yeah." He said, "You know, have you ever seen a a, a financial plan?" Uh, before and assets and liabilities and so on. <laughs> he said, well, yeah, I think we I did some of that, but I was really more on the management side of things, not on the, <laughs> the finance side of things. So his MBA probably helped him on, on one part of his work, but it made it complex for uh, from the financial side. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com.
When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm, Smith, and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced, professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. What do you remember uh, about the the first time you saw the now famous binder that he had put together? I guess his experience in previous the previous couple of years interviewing for other jobs had 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 sort of inspired him to put together this thick binder, sort of outlining his vision of of what would happen if he were the if he became a head coach, and and it's really remarkable looking back in hindsight at the vision that he had because um, among other ways he he had identified prospective coaches that that he wouldn't hire until years after that like Tony Elliott who came aboard in 2011 Brandon Streeter who I think came aboard in 14 this is way back in 08 when he's already he already has these these ideas for coaches that that he's going to pursue what well, what was your first reaction when you saw that? And was it during, well, I don't know, you might not remember, but I think it was, was it during the audition or was it after he had gotten the job and he was, then he was presenting his vision to the board and to the administration? I, um, I'm not positive about what, what that was. My sense was that he saved that until the, he was actually auditioning for the job. He already had the job uh, without a without his that notebook. Um, so so Terry Don had already decided that he was going to be getting the interim position. So I think it was the I'm pretty sure it was the for the permanent position. And I was um, I, I was very much impressed by that. But I, honestly, I wasn't blown away by it because. As an architect, you bring your portfolio with you when you interview for a job, right? Mm-hmm. You bring your work, you bring your uh, what you've accomplished, but you also bring your dreams too when you're interviewing for a job or you're applying to graduate school or whatever it might be. So the notion of that being a portfolio uh, was um, was not that big a, a stretch for me to, to get my hands around. Now, that didn't that was not a measure of the quality, but the fact that he would have one. Uh, was was not that unusual for for me in that situation, but to see the depth of it, the detail of it, the uh, the insight that was revealed in it, um, the uh, the fact that the, that the effort that it was that was demonstrated in it, and so overall the quality of it uh, would would have made it an architectural portfolio better than I'd ever seen before. So that was what was impressive uh, to me about it was the substance of it as opposed to the fact that he had done all that work. 
back two years ago when we published this article from the interview with you, I, I sent it to Dabo just because I, I thought he'd want to read it, and he responded, that's pretty cool right there. Thanks for sharing. President Barker had a lot of guts. What do you think he was talking about? Well, I know what, what he's talking about because he's told me this uh, since then. Or I'm not sure when he when he told me this, but he, uh, when times were not good, um, after his first season or two, it, it was, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure about uh, on Terry Don, um, and um, so it was. It was some. It wasn't all smooth sailing from the fact we sometimes tell the story to the fact to the point where he received the, the head coaching position permanently. Uh, and, uh, and we don't remember what happens in the first two or three years after that. That's right. Uh, it was not smooth sailing. He was dealing with coaches that, that he'd asked to stick with him and he did not feel like he could make changes that quickly because they had done their best to stick with him and he couldn't betray them. And, and I understood that, but not everybody did. And so um, that's, that's when some of the, uh, the emails began to fly and some of the pressure on Terry Don began to be um, much higher than, than what I'd ever seen before. So, yeah, that's, um, I guess that's what he's referring to. But that, being a university president, there, there are a lot of situations like that that you have to navigate and um and my my, my position was I, I felt comfortable that i had the support of the board of trustees and that we needed to do the right thing and if it meant uh having a little more patience uh, with people in positions then that's what we would do so um it's it's really important that um uh the the university um, president and athletic director and trustees are together in that effort and um and that makes it a whole lot easier to to make difficult decisions and looking back on it now it's much more i get a, a much warmer feeling knowing that we did go through some hard times and looking at the success that we have now um but I didn't. I, if you measure, if you're measuring guts, it's uh, Dabo's the one that that scores highest on that. The interesting thing, thinking back to then, and we're talking 2010 during the six and seven season in his in his second full year, was it was it, there was clamor not to fire Dabo, but they wanted they wanted Terry Don fired. Yeah. And perhaps even you as well run out of town. What's your recollection of the worst of it and, and sort of how you were, you and Terry Don were processing it? Um, well, I think there was, there was a lot of trust. Terry, uh, Terry Don, um, uh, I think had trust in me and I and him, and he knew that I would do not what was the right thing by him, but, but the right thing for Clemson. And, um, so yeah, we, we there was a pretty a careful analysis of uh, the work that Dabo was doing and the work that Terry Don was doing, and um, it was it was it was pretty stressful. Um, but it, again, 
once I um, interviewed enough people in the athletic department and uh, had enough conversation with people that I, I thought would be candid and, and uh, straightforward about their thinking about uh, who was leading uh, both the football program and the athletic program, um, uh, it was um, the answer became pretty clear to me. And I, I, I felt good about where we were headed and, uh, and the leadership we were getting in both those areas and, uh, and knew that um, Terry Don was critical to Dabo's success. And I think Dabo felt the same way, that there's nothing worse for a, a football coach uh, than to have uh, his ath- athletic director changed. Uh, the athletic director that hired that coach, they always feel, I'm not going to say always, but I could understand why they would feel abandoned and less than supported. So um, reaching that decision regarding Terry Don was uh, something I felt good about. And as time has passed, of course, I, I think I feel better and better about that. I'm guessing you've heard Dabo's anecdote that came after the South Carolina game in 2010. They had just lost uh, to the Gamecocks back-to-back years for the first time since the early 70s, I believe. Uh, And then Dabo is going to his office after the game, and Kathleen approaches him and, and is in tears, or near tears, and says, Terry Don is waiting on you in your office. And they, they're both thinking, well, that's it. It's been a good ride. About to get fired. And he walks in and, and is surprised when Terry Don tells him, I've never had more confidence in you than I do right now. You're the man to to lead us where we want to go. Um, do you, what was, I guess, can you share, uh, if you can, um, if you can recall the, the some insight from that precise moment in time when, the season's sort of on the rocks. Um, it's a it's a bad year. Uh, what gave you and Terry Don that conviction at that moment that everything was going to be okay in time? Um. Well, I think uh, first of all that that we we had to be we had to reach a conclusion that we were very proud and and excited about what Terry Don would do uh, with the athletic program and the fact that he was being supported, gave him the ability to talk to, to Dabo the way he did. So I think that, um, so you, you have to recognize, and, and again, it helps being a Clemson graduate, how much um, the desire to be, to be uh, academically strong and athletically strong works together. And this notion of one Clemson was not a bumper sticker. It was beginning to become even more clear to me as we were being more and more successful and and doing better and better at recruiting. It was helping the reputation of the university overall. And that the integrity that we were seeing in uh, athletics was giving us uh, pride in the whole university. So we had that. That became clear. Sometimes when you're in the middle of it, you you have to be able to get out of that fog and be able to see what's coming. 
and being able to do that and communicating that to to Terry Don, I think gave him the confidence that he could say what he said to Dabo, and I think that was the a the the key point for the university and the key point for for football um, that we can look back on and um, and say you know that was the right thing to do and that um, what built from there is something that um, that we um, we should all be proud of. You mentioned how difficult it is on a head coach when he loses his AD. <clears throat> Dabo, uh, the the chain of command above him that was in place when he was hired is has is totally different. Different AD, uh, different president, different chairman of the board of trustees. Is the one of the most remarkable aspects to you of this story of them becoming one of the great powers in college football history in recent years, the fact that it has been done amid turnover above him and they've been able to achieve such remarkable, or I guess retain and maintain such remarkable alignment and harmony uh, up and down the chain of command. Yeah, I I think that we're, um, but I, I it doesn't take a real genius on my part or anybody's part to know that we've got something special going on in, uh, in football and in athletics. So, uh, that was, that was clear to the people we interviewed for the athletic director position. Uh, and it was, it was clear to the board as they made the decision about, um, who would be the next president of the university. So those were part of the conversations that took place. And, uh, how strongly did they feel about the coach that we had? Um, so that that was something I think that uh, enabled that momentum to keep going. And um, and I know that uh, people in those new positions made it very clear to Dabo when they were hired, or immediately when they were hired. It's probably the first phone call they made, <laughs> and to make sure that. Um, that Dabo felt supported. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked this long without even touching on the seemingly seismic changes going on in college athletics. What do you make of where things are right now? Uh, I guess we can start with the realignment, another round of, of realignment that is upon us. Um, Texas and Oklahoma to the, to the SEC, uh, the uh, ESPN, the television partner of the Big 12, seemingly, allegedly, actively um, working to to chip away at it and to perhaps even dissolve it. Now there are questions about the ACC. Where do they go and how do they ensure their viability moving forward? How closely have you pay, been paying attention to this and what do you make of it? Well, I guess the position I'm, I'm in is that um, any response I might give would be a position of a of a dedicated Clemson fan now because Clemson is my alma mater. I'm not. Um, uh, I, I can't really stop thinking about Clemson's welfare um, on all the issues that that you're talking about. Um, 
and my heart says keep the status quo exactly like it is. You know, we we're a great university. We've got great sports programs. Uh, and any kind of change would be a mistake. Um, however, um, I don't really control things. So uh, I've sort of challenged myself in, in thinking um, and what would what sort of how should we approach these dramatic changes? What are the ways in which we can make our our current status even stronger through these changes? And that, the way to do that is not to put your head in the sand, uh, but to, to actually be as uh, creative about some of these things as we could possibly be. Um, so as I, as I follow the development of, of some of these things, um, after I get over my pouting about, well, let's just leave it like it is, um, this is going to continue to happen because not everybody's going to be successful. And the ones that aren't successful are the ones who are advocating change, and they're always outnumber the ones that are successful. So, this is something we need to get prepared for, and and uh, uh, try to try to understand uh, earlier manifestations of some of these things, and how did we work our way through those things to be at the point we are now? You were instrumental in the process of. Uh, Notre Dame coming aboard uh, on a part-time basis in, in football, uh, but you were very involved in that process uh, with, with, with the ACC. At the time, and I I forgot what year this was, but 12, I want to say, when this all this stuff, all that went down, but at the time, did you have optimism that Notre Dame would eventually come aboard uh, full-time in football? And then right now, what are your, from the outside looking in, what's your feeling on on whether that's a legitimate uh, possibility and whether it's legitimate to hope for that? Um, When I I was chairing the Council of Presidents in the ACC during all all this time, and I began to realize that the the letters ACC stood for another conference call. <laughs> there were there were constant communication going on, um, trying to sort through these these things uh, and trying our best to do it uh, without it being in the public domain uh, because it might it might alter decisions that different schools and their boards of trustees might have to make if it was uh, in the public domain. Um, I think you've got to have trust and communication um, with the presidents. Uh, the presidents have to have that with their boards. Uh, we've got a new commissioner in the ACC now, um, and and that becomes um, becomes something that 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 trust hasn't been built up over the years, like that would be the case with with John Swalford. Um, so I think the the other thing that people might not be thinking about is how important it is between schools and the presidents who sits in those chairs at, um, at ACC schools. Um, and some of those relationships are more and more vital, I think, than others. Um, I would suggest that Florida State's relationship with Clemson is critical um, as, as far as 
keeping things together or is planning for for the future. Um, so I, I think those kind of relationships between presidents are, are very important and that there be good communication and good trust uh, in the, under enormous pressure that um, schools and, and boards are going to be under. Um, but I, I, I'm, my thought is that there may need to be complete. I mean, right now I'm just seeing chatter about one or two schools changing from one conference to the other. Um, would Notre Dame join the ACC or not? Um, what would be the circumstances which would bring Notre Dame together? Uh, those are all very important. But I hope that somebody is thinking really boldly about conferences uh, instead of one or two changes coming one way or the other. Um, I'm going to give you an example that I, I don't um, – I'm not suggesting to anybody that it might happen, but it would give you an example of some of the thinking that might be, should be going on uh, at this point in time. And that let's suppose uh, – and again, I've not had any conversation with anybody about any of these things, but let's suppose that um, – that uh, instead of the, the small changes that and trying to respond to what the SEC is doing, that we that someone think about um, the idea of the American Coast Conference. And there are two divisions in it. There's an Atlantic division and a Pacific division. And the winner of those two divisions play for the conference championship. And there maybe is a set number of interdivisional games during the course uh, of that season. Um, so that what you do is you put two conferences together. And that you wind up making, uh, uh, you, you begin to get in the driver's seat as opposed to just responding to something that somebody else is doing. The same kind of thing could happen between the ACC and the Big Ten if the Big Ten was interested. I don't know if anybody's thinking that scale or not, but it might be time to be thinking that way. Or Pac-12 in the in the terms of the coastal, the two coasts of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you? I I distinctly remember when I was with the Post and Courier doing an interview with you. Must have been around 2005 or so, and the topic of the day was. Uh, maybe Thursday night games and the concern about sort of being beholden to when ESP, when television tells you to play <laughs> as opposed right. to setting your own times and things like that. And I asked you at the time, I said, do you believe that college athletics is sort of are given up the moral high ground uh, of saying, you know, it's about you know, the academically high minded high ground, I guess. Uh, built on amateurism and 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 not commercialism, and you said at the time you were concerned. And here we are. That seems like a quaint concern to have <laughs> compared to the concerns now. Being now we have, I mean, it really seems like ESPN is the puppet master here. Um, 
as it, again, allegedly, according to the Big 12's commissioner, is trying to dissolve not just a conference, but its partner that is a conference. Um, How troubled are you now on these issues that are orders of magnitude greater than what we were talking about back in 2005? Well, I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned when we talk about um, expanding the playoffs to 12 teams and how many more games that would add and how many more tackles that would put on the bodies of student-athletes and and what kind of injury rate are we going to have as we expand um, uh, those those numbers of games. Uh, and, and like I said, I, there, there's, there are lots of things to be concerned about. But there are also times when you, you have to decide that there are certain things you can control and certain things you can't. And uh, I don't think you give up on any of those, but as you see opportunities, you have to act on them both from the moral high ground and maybe from some, some elevation less than that. And, and part of it would be to try to be the ones that determine your own destiny. Um, so I, I think um, there, there are, there, I haven't seen a change yet that I could say that I'm very happy about, but I'm not, I do, I'm not, of a mindset that says we can't make something better uh, out of this. Um, for example, I mean, the uh, name, image, and likeness, it seems, I, I, it's hard for me to be enthusiastic about that change. Um, at the same time, if we, if we think a little more carefully and a little bit more imaginatively about this, you could say that the players who are most likely to get additional income or endorsements or whatever are the ones who are likely to play professionally. In other words, that will, that will take care of itself in a certain way. They'll be the ones that are, uh, that are moving on to probably professional sports. Uh, we can prepare them for the world of contracts, endorsements, communication skills, public relations, all those things we teach at Clemson. So we can offer advice and counsel and classes and make them even better prepared graduates of Clemson for their chosen profession, because that's our job, isn't it? Make them prepared for their chosen profession. So if you could think of NIL as a kind of on-campus internship for student-athletes and decide what skill set they need and who are the best people to teach that, then you got another bridge built between athletics and academics that didn't exist before. You were part of the group that uh, was charged with, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm going just on to my recollection of basically rewriting the NCAA rulebook, paring it down considerably, getting rid of rules that were against a, a, a player getting an extra skittle uh, on on a visit, and at the time it was, I think I, I want to say the idea was more okay. Schools need to police themselves, uh, and and then if there's are serious rule rule breakers, then they need to be harshly punished. And now we're we're at the point where it seems likely that. Uh, there's going to be a breakaway from the NCAA. Where did they go wrong? 
meaning the NCAA. And what is your assessment on sort of where we are? You know, now we're at the point where a Supreme Court justice is is lighting up the NCAA, not just the NCAA, but the whole model. Basically, saying the whole amateurism model is is begging to get uh, uh, begging begging to get drawn into court and uh, as as an antitrust sort of price fixing endeavor. Well. I approached that assignment um, with the idea that the the when I was chairing the the board there, um, I, I was determined to simplify and clarify and streamline and demystify the NCAA. I failed. <laughs> I tried. Mm. I failed. It was just too big and too complex for one person, but. When I was asked to take on this task with the rule book, I said, well, here's a, a place to start. Um, and again, I failed. Um, the, the institution is so complex and so structured with a covenant with tradition that it can't embrace the covenant with change. And I think that... Uh, until it does that, it, it will continue to to will continue to see things as almost most I think most people see things are out of control in a way, um, and I think we're going to have to reinvent uh, the basic tenets that founded the NCAA and see um, what, what can be built from that foundation. Do you think that there could be some positive to come from? the power schools, so to speak, breaking away and having some sort of federation where it's four 16-team super conferences and you actually have a czar or a, a, an authority uh, similar, I guess, to the, to the playoff whereby you can sort of make your own rules and you can perhaps collectively bargain with your athlete, with your players on issues such as name, image, likeness, or perhaps in the future pay for play. Could you see some positive in that where there's actually a structure uh, and actually someone running the show? I, I think it's, it's worth, it's worth considering um, given where we are uh, that would um, restructure and, and, and consolidate into that the kind of uh, organization that you're talking about. I don't know that on the surface at this point where we can see all the unintended consequences, but I think putting some bright people together in a room for an extended period of time that would develop some of these ideas and do their best at thinking through on it and then bring it to um, the various schools and see what kind of response you might get um, it, it's certainly worth spending some time thinking about it because I think what we've got right now is broken. And um, so that I guess that's what I'm saying. If we can't freeze everything just the way it is, which is what I would rather do, then then I think it's time to sort of start fresh and see what we might come up with and uh, uh, and and see if we won't have a better, model for our student athletes and this 
the thing that I would do before I did any of that, though, Larry, what I would do would be to make a, a list of fairly fairly straightforward, a, a short list of eight guiding principles, seven, something that's not three dozen and something that's more than three principles that would guide this process and the decision uh, on those guiding principles would be um, just in my in my judgment start with the first one being put the needs of the students first and then go from there with the rest with the other seven and if you did that then you would be First of all, you'd have the moral high ground, and you'd have to mean it. You couldn't just say it as a token thing. But you rebuild what needs to be rebuilt around a set of guiding principles of which the first one would be uh, students. I would love to talk with you for three more hours. I could. I really could. It probably wouldn't be fair to you, though, because it's lunchtime and you're probably uh, getting <laughs> getting hungry. Is there anything... <laughs> Anything we haven't covered that you that you'd like to share? You want to get off your chest? Um, I'm glad to see the track team still with us. Yeah, um, I'm glad to see that uh, our female students are getting uh, some attention now um, in terms of title, I mean, more attention now in terms of Title Nine. I think that will be something that we can be proud of. Um, so those are the only two. Two other things that had been running through my head uh, as a former pole vaulter, um, extremely average <laughs> pole vaulter, uh, thinking about um, that we'll we'll continue to have the track track team, and that uh, we'll uh, that that uh, our female students are going to get um, uh, some some equity in the because of the hard work. Every time I see uh, our rowing team out early in the morning. Uh, I, I'm reminded of how dedicated uh, our our Olympic sports are that don't get quite as much attention, and particularly our female women's sports, our female uh, Olympic sports. Well, this has been fabulous, and um, I mentioned those drawings earlier. I'd love for you to perhaps email them to some of them to me so we can share. I know people will be interested. And um, I'd love to, to make this a semi-regular thing. Maybe we could do it, say, once a year or something, just to get your your thoughts on the temperature of all this change as, as it continues to evolve. Well, I, I'm happy to do that. And uh, I'll, I'll w- w- as far as the drawings are concerned, do you have a particular kind that you would – a campus drawing, particularly, I guess that would be. Yes, good. that'd be great. Okay, we, one, one or two enough. Sure, however, however many you would like to, you would like to send. Uh, you don't, you don't need all. I think the last count is over three hundred, so I don't think I'll send. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be a big um, file. I, I would just say, in closing, you asked me about this. I, I sincerely hope that Notre Dame will join the conference, um, but I don't think that's the the the. Be all and end all of things. I think we we need to know that that's that that door is there, but I, I think we have to think uh, also more boldly than that. You think it's realistic? Yeah, I think it's realistic that they could do that. Uh, I, I would just say this: that when we talked with them, it was not about money. It was not about contracts. It was about 
making sure that Notre Dame's reputation was a national reputation, so therefore they had to play schools nationally. And so that's, especially in football. But I think we've proven that that we're a great base and that they've been happy with uh, the way they've been accommodated. Um, but uh, whether this is a question of, I, I think for people to think it's a question of dollars, uh, I don't think it is. Um, it needs to be a, a question of, of academic strength, and uh, we've got a great deal to offer them in that regard. So you think, reading between the lines, your opinion is that linking up with another conference, whether it be Big Ten or Pac-12, would provide that uh, national it would fulfill that national the national desire that, that you spoke of for, from Notre Dame to the point where it would be realistic for them to join up. It's certainly possible. I'm speculating all that. Sure, sure. I'm speculating on all that. But I do, I do think the main reason I brought that case study up, first of all, it, because it's crazy, right? I mean, nobody would come up with that from the standpoint of just, you know, to, it is it's so crazy. Nobody else would um, uh, be thinking. Perhaps they're thinking that way, but I'm not not certainly not aware of it. But I'm, I'm amazed that um, that we don't use these moments in time to to open up possibilities. That's not just baby steps, but huge steps. Well, it's not that crazy because uh, Jay Billis of ESPN just last week suggested that the ACC try to link up with the SEC. Huh. So uh, I'm not sure how plausible that is, but I, I'd be surprised if, if such discussions relative to the to the Big Ten and such weren't happening or at least being thought about. Well, I, I would feel a lot better if I knew they were having conversations. <laughs> well, you have a lot of connections, so all you got to do is pick up the phone and call. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. Well, it has been a pleasure. Um, you have a wonderful day, and, and, th- and thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. You're quite welcome, Larry. Thank you. Awesome, awesome conversation there uh, with Clemson's former president in so many ways. Really appreciate him sharing so much of his time with us. Also, Appreciate the very loyal and consistent support of our six sponsors. Last and most definitely not least, thanks to all of you for hitting play every week. Y'all have a great rest of the week, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers.